For whose sins did Christ die? Today we're looking at the extent of the atonement, and I have brought in the leading scholar on the question. His name is Dr. David Allen. He is the dean of the School of Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he uh, recently wrote a monster of a book, over 800 pages, and every page is worth reading, called The Extent of the Atonement, A Historical and Critical Review, and that was published by B&H Academic. And um, it's, a, it's a great book. I have it myself. And uh, it takes you through the history of the extent of the atonement. So Dr. Allen takes you back in time and looks at um, leading thinkers throughout church history and what they believed about the extent of the atonement. Who did Jesus die for? Whose sins did Jesus die for? And I think you'll be quite surprised, especially when you get to the, the Reformation, uh, when you see who believed what. And, and he quotes straight from the primary sources themselves. So by all means, go check his work on that. And uh, we had a lovely conversation. Um, I uh, have uh, been a, a follower, I guess you could say, of Dr. Allen for a long time and, and read all his books. A second book that you'll want to look at uh, that we talk about in the bonus segment is uh, Luke and Authorship of Hebrews. And so that is another book of Dr. Allen's. And he, uh, he, he basically lays out the argument that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews, and it's very compelling. But if you want to hear that conversation, you'll have to follow the link in the description over to our Patreon page and become a supporter. And you can get access to not only that bonus segment, but but all bonus segments uh, for the podcast as well. Um, If you're watching via YouTube, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you can get the latest episodes. And if you're listening via podcast, subscribe there as well and leave us a review, guys. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. In today's modern scientific era, how could you possibly still believe in God? And, And the resurrection, people do not rise from the dead. And don't even start to tell me that you think the Bible is God's Word. If you've ever heard questions like these, or if you've ever had doubts about your faith, this has helped me believe where each week we aim to answer a tough question about Christianity. Our aim is to strengthen the believer and answer the critic. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host. And today I am excited to inter- introduce my guest to you. He is the Dean of, Pre- of, of the School of Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. David Allen. Dr. Allen, how are you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm doing great, Hayden. Thanks for having me on. Well, I really do appreciate you coming on, and um, I've been a, a longtime admirer of uh, your work and your preaching. And in fact, i got to tell a story first. Of uh, The first time I ever met Dr. Allen, he came to preach a revival at a church I was working at, and he comes, and I come up to him with my commentary on the on the book of Hebrews, I believe it was, to get it autographed, and I'm this real excited young seminarian kid uh, standing in the presence of a, a well-known theologian, and so I'm real excited. And then before he gets up to preach, he turns to me and says, I I forgot my Bible. Can I borrow yours? And so <laughs> that's kind of how I first <laughs> met Dr. Allen. And so uh, to make things even uh, kind of work, not worse, but whatever, um, he gets up to preach from the book of Hebrews, of course, and I have notes from his commentary all over that thing because I write in my Bible. I don't know if that's heresy or what, but I do that. And so I was kind of thinking, he's going to get up there and preach. He's going to see all the notes I wrote and how dumb I am. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so anyway, just a kind of a funny backstory to the first time I met Dr. Allen. Uh, so it is a pleasure to have you on, sir. I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to uh, answer some of my questions. Well, hey, it's a joy to be here, a pleasure to be here, and thank you for that. And and your notes were quite good. I made it through that sermon okay. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to hear it. So uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Dr. Allen's. Uh, a book on, called The Extent of the Atonement. It is a monster of a book, over 800 pages on uh, that topic. I don't have a physical copy. Uh, I have the digital copy, and I, I read it a long time ago, and I often uh, reference back to it whenever I have a question about the subject. And so um, thank you for writing that book. It is a wonderful book. I will leave a link in the description. Uh, so if any of the, the watchers or listeners want to get a copy of that, and I promise you do because it will answer a lot of your questions. Um, but uh, w- let's jump right into things, if you don't mind. Um, let's uh, start by defining some terms for the audience. What what do we even mean when we talk about the atonement? What does the atonement mean? 
Well, um, thank you for uh, plugging that the book, by the way. And I might just mention before we uh, begin that I have a new book on the atonement yeah. coming up in March. And this will be a more of a general uh, book. It'll be about 350 pages published by B&H Academic on the, all things related to the atonement. And uh, so it will cover the extent of the atonement, but it will cover the nature of the atonement, the history of uh, theology of the atonement, uh, and uh, the necessity of the atonement, and some theological aspects of the atonement, and a lot of things along those lines uh, that readers will probably enjoy. And it'll be a lot more compact, uh, even though 350 pages may not sound very compact compared to 842 pages, which is the yeah. length of the Book, Can you write a book a, that's 350 easier. pages? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. My Hebrews commentary is 600 and something pages, and uh, but uh, I'm working to uh, uh, to do better on my pagination, <laughs> yeah. where people can have the time to read it. But basically, yes, your question is uh, very is actually wise to begin with. What is the atonement? Because you cannot really answer the extent of the atonement question until you. Uh, clearly identify and define the atonement. And basically the atonement is, in theological terms, it is what God did through Christ on the cross to take care of and to address the sin problem. And in so doing, in Christ dying on the cross, he paid uh, the price for sins. And he made an atonement for sins, which includes concepts like a propitiation for sins, an expiation for sins, and the biblical terminology that is used to describe that are terms like uh, redemption, ransom, and uh, even the concept of satisfaction, the term sacrifice. All of these terms uh, are terms that are used to describe what Christ did on the cross when he died on that cross for sins. And so the atonement is basically the work of Christ. It falls under the category of soteriology. It's exactly what was God doing through Christ when Christ died on the cross. And of course, what God was doing was making a payment uh, for sins. And what he was doing was, was making an atonement uh, for sins. And he was doing such in a substitutionary fashion whereby Jesus substituted himself for all sinners on the cross. And he, in so doing, he satisfied the law of God and he created a situation whereby God can now make overtures of reconciliation to a lost world because his law has now been satisfied by virtue of Christ's atoning death on the cross. So this is what we mean specifically by the word atonement. Okay, uh, that's a good starting point, and uh, I'm actually going to mix up uh, the order of some of the questions I sent you here, but uh, I, f I feel like this would be a good place to address some subcategories underneath the word atonement that uh, when I first read the book uh, really um, enlightened me to, and I think it's enlightening, it helps you uh, better think about this subject, and that would be the difference between the ex uh, intent of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, and the application of the atonement. So if you could kind of address right. the, uh, what those three things are and kind of why we need to distinguish between them. Right. In order to discuss the atonement theologically, there are three key issues, and you just enumerated them, that have to be distinguished. They are not completely separate from each other. They are all related to the big picture of the atonement, but they must be distinguished or, or the discussion will go off the rails quickly. And so by the intent of the atonement, that answers the question, what was God's purpose in Christ's death on the cross? And there are some things that we can say clearly from Scripture about that. His purpose, of course, is to address the sin problem. His purpose is to, by his substitutionary death, his, I would argue, a penal substitutionary death, that he pays the price and the penalty for all sins. And that is his intent, is to accomplish an atonement for the sins of all people. Now, 
within within that, there are Christians who differ over the question of the intent of the atonement. And basically, there are two subcategories there. Uh, those of us who are not Reformed in our theology argue that God's intent in the atonement is to provide a satisfaction for the sins of all people equally, such that God desires the salvation of all people. And he's made an atonement for the sins of all people. However, uh, the Reformed, in, the, in Reformed theology, their understanding of the intent of the atonement is that Jesus uh, suffered and died with the intent that the atonement would only be applied to the elect, that the purpose of the atonement is for the salvation of the elect. Now, at this point, we also have to distinguish between two kinds of Calvinists. This is what I do in the book, as you recall, reading in the introductory chapter, because with the, when it comes to the intent of the atonement, all Calvinists are in agreement that God's intent in the atonement is to save only the elect. However, when it comes to the question of the extent of the atonement, that answers the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? And all non-Calvinists affirm that Jesus died equally for the sins of all people. And then Calvinists are divided on the question of the extent of the atonement. There are some Calvinists, probably the majority today, who affirm that the atonement is strictly limited in its scope to the elect alone, such that Jesus only died for the sins of the elect. The question of the extent of the atonement is this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? Uh, probably most Calvinists would argue for what is called a strictly limited atonement, that Jesus died only for the sins of the elect and all who are the so-called non-elect, for their sins he did not die. However, there are many Calvinists, both today and in history, who argued that the extent of the atonement was actually unlimited, so that Jesus did indeed die for the sins of all people. This is where these Calvinists, we refer to them as moderate Calvinists. Another name for them is four-point Calvinists. These are Calvinists who affirm all other aspects of Calvinism, but they reject the theological notion of limited atonement. They believe that exegetically, the scripture teaches like all non-Calvinists believe, that Jesus died for the sins of all people and that that was God's purpose and intent uh, to die for the sins of all people. Now, they also believe that in terms of intent, he only intends to apply that atonement, the benefits of that atonement to the elect. In that sense, moderate Calvinists agree with high Calvinists. They agree with those who affirm limited atonement on the question of intent, but they disagree with their fellow Calvinists on the question of extent. So we need to differentiate the question of intent, the question of extent. And finally, the third issue is the application of the atonement. And that is, uh, to whom is the atonement applied and when? And of course, ultimately, the atonement is only applied to those who believe. There's no application of the atonement apart from those who believe. Now, I'm not talking here about infants who die in infancy. That's a, a separate category. I do believe they are covered un, under the atonement of Christ. So our discussion has to do with people who are morally capable of making decisions of right and wrong. And for all of them, the scripture is clear. Salvation is only by grace through faith in Christ. And it is only when people believe in Christ that the benefits of the atonement are applied to them. That application occurs in history. It does not occur at the cross. It does not occur in eternity past. The concepts of eternal justification and justification at the cross are false doctrines that are held by a few Calvinists, but the vast majority reject that and affirm that the atonement is applied in time, in history, at the moment a person believes in Christ, at the moment they have faith, the atonement uh, is applied to them. That's the biblical view. So, yes, you're quite right in 
to accurately uh, have a discussion here, we must distinguish between the intent of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, and the application of the atonement. Okay, uh, before we move forward uh, with the extent of the atonement, I just uh, I do have a question there. So it, it is conceivable, or there are uh, some Calvinists who believe that God only intended to save the elect, but however the extent of the atonement is universal? That is correct. In fact, the first generation of the Reformed, uh, Calvin, by the way, is technically a second generation uh, Richard Muller, the great uh, Reformed historian, makes that point, as do a number of others. Uh, but either way, Calvin is one of the great early Calvinists, and all of the earliest of the Reformed, the first generation of reform of the Reformed, uh, actually affirmed an unlimited atonement. Now, they affirmed an unlimited atonement with respect to extent, but they all affirm, all Calvinists confessionally affirm that the intent of the atonement is to save only the elect. It would seem, and I must be, I must be misunderstanding, but it would seem that if God intended to save only the elect, and then somehow it becomes, uh, the extent of it is unlimited. Unlimited. That that would mean God had unintended consequences happen from what God intended to do. Well, Am actually, not at all. Okay. No. That, now, that is a question that people often okay. ask. Actually, that's not the case because okay. the Scripture clearly says all, Christ, all Christians, whether Reformed or non-Reformed, can agree that only those who believe in Christ are going to be saved. Forget the nature of election for a minute, mm -hmm. how election comes about. That's a debate we, a person can have, people uh, can have. But take that off the table. Uh, regardless of how election operates— only those who believe in Christ are going to be saved. We all, all Orthodox Christians reject universalism. We don't believe everybody is going to be saved. And the Bible does teach that those who do believe in Christ are elect. Now, what that means and how they get there is a different debate. But everybody agrees at that point. So the, the difference of opinion falls on the issue of intent here. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because we were—I'm sorry, just to be clear—we were. Yeah. You were just discussing the application. Right. I was. Yeah. I was okay. just. I was just talking about that. Okay. But in terms of intent, mm -hmm. all Calvinists affirm one single thing about this. They're all in confessional agreement that the intent of God is to only save the elect. Okay. That's Reformed theology. Now. All non-Calvinists, everybody else in of all branches of Orthodox Christianity believe that God's intent is to save all who will believe, that he has not, we differ with the Calvinistic definition of election. Okay. We believe that God's intent is to save all who will believe. Now, <clears throat> Calvinists who affirm un who af who affirm an unlimited atonement are doing so because they believe that's what Scripture teaches. They see right. that clearly taught, and so they believe in unconditional election and an unlimited atonement because they believe both are taught in Scripture. Okay, and they are they are trying to stay close to Scripture and argue that point, and that's why they reject limited atonement. And there's there are a number of purposes for the atonement beyond the salvation only of the of the so-called uh, elect. Okay. God's universal love is, an, is represented in the atonement. And so Scripture teaches that God does love all people. Orthodox Calvinism teaches that God loves all people. Now, he has what is called a special love, a saving love for the elect, according to Reformed theology. That is something that I and all non-Calvinists would differ with. We don't think Calvinists are properly describing and defining the love of God uh, biblically. We don't see distinctions in the love of God uh, for people prior to their conversion. Now, obviously, the benefits of the atonement bring about a relationship between a saved person and God that does not exist between the unsaved and God. Right. But that does not mean that God has a separate kind of love for the elect that he does not have for the non-elect. Right. This is that all non-reformed uh, of people differ with their reformed brothers and sisters on. 
So we believe that that uh, even the four point Calvinists they clearly affirm God's uh, love for all people, and they affirm God what is called God's universal saving desire that He desires the salvation of all people, and they believe that Scripture clearly teaches those, and that it also teaches a universal atonement, because how could God desire the salvation of people for whose sins he did not die? Right. It becomes a huge problem, and the four-point Calvinist sees that problem. Okay. And they recognize that Scripture indicates that Christ died for the sins of all people. Okay. I think my confusion, and and I'll go ahead and, and ask it a different way, just in case anybody else is confused as well. I guess my did you say that uh, all Orthodox Christians uh, affirm a limited intent? Uh, no. Okay, no. I misunderstood. Okay. Yeah, let me see if I can clarify. <laughs> I'm sorry. Number number one, only Reformed theologians, only those in the Reformed in Reformed theology, okay. affirm a limited intent in the sense of an intent. Christ's intent is to die only for the sins of the elect, and his intent is to save only them. Okay, so would uh, the traditional soteriology that you hold to be God intended to save? All who believe. All who believe. Right. So now, that, all is that limited? going to turn out to be the elect, but his intent is unlimited. Okay. The intent is unlimited. The application, however, is limited. Okay, that— that would seem to be the coherent view because I feel like if you start with a limited intent, then I think the extent would have to f logically follow limited as well. Well, that's what the high Calvinists argue. And, of course, that's what moderate Calvinists and non-Calvinists, we differ with them on that. Okay. A high Calvinists do argue. So you want to say that it is conceivable. There's oh, no, absolutely. There's no contradiction. It's, right. It's not only conceivable, it's biblical. Well, I know that the ex I believe that the extent uh, uh, being unlimited is biblical, but I'm saying I don't start with a, a limited intent either. Right. But right. for the Calvinist who starts with limited intent and then goes on to say that the extent is unlimited, it would just seem to me, and and I'm I must be wrong. I usually am. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just it seems right now to me that uh, that would mean God intended something but something else actually came about. Well, there are two issues there. Okay. Number one, it, it is, I think it is problematic uh, beca because of the notion of their intent, the idea of intent, all non-Calvinists differ with. We think that's, that's wrong. But it's not problematic from a four-point Calvinist perspective because they argue, as do non-Calvinists, that there are multiple intentions okay. for the atonement is not only to satisfy for the sins of all people, uh, but or or to die for the sins of people. Mm -hmm. The atonement is a demonstration of the love of God. The atonement has eschatological dimensions to it, whereby Christ is going to triumph over all things, as Colossians mm -hmm. talks about. These are there are multiple intentions for the atonement. Uh, Calvin and I, I quote him in the book. Now, Calvin and other Reformed theologians who believe in an unlimited atonement argue that God's intention was for Christ to die for the sins of all people because then that makes them doubly culpable for their rejection of the gospel. Mm. And, and so there are a number of reasons for the intent of the, of the, for the, what we call a multiple intentions view of the atonement. One interesting book that your uh, hearers and readers would, would enjoy uh, looking at that is a recent book uh, written uh, by Gary Schultz uh, on the intentions of the atonement, a multiple intentions view of the atonement. Uh, that book uh, by Gary Schultz, he did his uh, PhD at Southern Seminary. Uh, Gary's a moderate Calvinist. He and I differ on Calvinism, but he and I agree on the extent of the atonement. He believes that Christ died for the sins of all people, and he demonstrates biblically how Scripture teaches there are multiple intentions for a universal atonement. Okay. God's intent is not only to die for the sins of the elect, but it, there are also other reasons for the atonement, which uh, he brings out and which moderate Calvinists affirm and all non-Calvinists affirm. 
Okay, that makes more sense. And I got hung up on the intent of the atonement, and here we are supposed to be talking about the extent of the atonement. <laughs> well, they are related, so it's a good thing that we had a chance to at least clear the air on that. Yeah, leave it to me to do that. But uh, let's get to the extent of the atonement. As you said, the extent of the atonement answers the question, for whom did Jesus die? And so I'm putting that question to you, Dr. Allen. Who did Jesus die for? Yes, and by the way, it's very important that we include the four words in the question, for the sins of. So the state of the question is this, the extent of the atonement, the question of the extent of the atonement is this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? It is important to state the question that way. The reason it is, is because uh, even high Calvinists who affirm limited atonement will, will say, oh, Jesus died for everybody. But what they mean by that is he died only for the sins of the elect, but then he died in some way. His death brings common grace to everybody. Now, that's not what we mean when we talk about Jesus died for all people. All right. Right. So it's important to insert the words uh, for whose sins did Jesus die? Because no Calvinist who affirms limited atonement will in that sense say Jesus died for everybody. They will say that Jesus died only for the sins of the elect. That is the view of limited atonement. But the extent question is, for whose sins did Jesus die? And we believe all non-Calvinists and all moderate Calvinists agree on this question. They believe that Jesus died for the sins of all people. There are a dozen key verses in the New Testament that affirm uh, and unlimited atonement. Uh, examples of some of those verses would be John 1, 29, uh, John 3, 16, uh, verses like uh, Romans uh, 5, 18 and 19, uh, verses like uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, uh, where Paul gives the gospel, the de- definition of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 through 21 is one of the strong statements that affirm an unlimited atonement. Uh, statements, passages like 1 John 2, 1 through 6, specifically 4 through 6, um, and then I think 1 John 4, it's either 12 or 16, one of those two, affirms an unlimited atonement. Uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14, uh, Hebrews 2, 9, uh, Hebrews 9, 28, 2 Peter uh, 2, 1, and First uh, John 2, 1 through 2. Those, all of those texts clearly affirm an unlimited atonement. There are about a dozen of those, which I treat in the book, The Extent of the Atonement, but I also will be treating in this new book on the atonement coming out in March. So that's what you have to be able to do if you want to be a dean of the School of Preaching, is you've got to be able to rattle off verses like that. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you may pause that, go back and write those verses down and go back and take a look for yourself. Um, but uh, Dr. Allen, uh, maybe take one of those verses or two, uh, it's up to you, and show show us why it can only be um, interpreted as uh, unlimited atonement. Okay, well, let me make sure. I, may, I didn't want to misspeak a while ago. I may have said First Peter uh, 2.1. I meant, if I did, I meant to say Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 1, so let me clarify that. Okay. But um, let's take one that's very, um, I think, very clear. Let's take the First John 2, 2 passage. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now there, John is writing to Christians. First John is addressed to believers. So what is John telling his audience of believers? He's telling them that Jesus is the propitiation for their sins. Then John says, however, he's also the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Now, when you see that phrase, whole world, that indicates a universal atonement. Now, I'm going to prove that in a moment, but before I do, when is to affirm limited atonement, come back and they say, no, that phrase, whole world, means one of three things. It is either a way of expressing the world of the elect only, which, of course, no Greek lexicon will concur with that interpretation because the word cosmos, 
as D.A. Carson says, never means the elect. So that's the first problem with that view. But then secondly, most Calvinists will say, well, no, uh, the whole world there just means uh, the world of Jews and Gentiles. So when John talks about the whole world, he's talking about some Jews and some Gentiles are going to be saved. That's also not what the text says. Notice that is eisegesis, that is reading into the text. Or number three, they will say, well, no, the world there doesn't mean all people, doesn't mean all people without exception. It means all people without distinction. In other words, it means all kinds of groups of people, people within uh, all of the people groups, some within those groups are thus the ones for whom he died. This is their way of trying to hold on to limited atonement. But the serious problem with that, and the same accrues uh, with First uh, Timothy 2, 4 through 6, where, uh, limit, where unlimited atonement is also clearly asserted, the same problem is there. All in First Timothy and world here in First John 2, 2, uh, means exactly what it says, and especially when the phrase whole world is used. And let me prove it to you. Uh, when you look at 1 John 2, 2, compare it to the only other place in 1 John where the phrase whole world occurs. In fact, it's the only place in all of Scripture where it occurs, in all the New Testament, 1 John 2, 2, and 1 John 5, 19. And when you look at 1 John 5, 19, there John says everybody falls into one of two categories. There are believers, and then there are there is the whole world of unbelievers. And so John's definition of world in 1 John is all of the unbelieving people mm -hmm. on the planet at the time of his writing. And Hermeneutically, we, we take phrases to mean what they mean in context. If you have the same phrase repeated twice, you don't give it a separate meaning. So now let's compare what John says in 1 John 5, 19 with what he says in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's believers. And for the sins of the whole world. And in 1 John 5, 19, whole world means all unbelieving people on the planet. And that's what it means in 1 John 2, 2. It's one of the clearest verses that affirms an unlimited atonement. In fact, it is exegetically impossible to make 1 John 2, 2 in conjunction with 1 John 5, 19 mean limited atonement. Has anyone ever responded to you on that point? Well, no, not yet. The book's been out two years, and they, the only response they say is, well, you're misunderstanding. They, they, they put off what I just said about 1 John 5, 19, and they go back to one of the two views that the word world either means uh, Jews and Gentiles, some Jews and Gentiles, or some groups and types of all people in the world, which is simply exegetically and hermeneutically wrong. Yeah. And so they really don't have an answer uh, exegetically to the First John two two and First John five nineteen connection yeah. for unlimited atonement. No, there's not ever been a good response to that by any high Calvinist that I have heard. The, uh, have you had responses uh, to written responses or or, or audio responses to uh, to your view on the on the atonement? Oh yeah, uh, there have been some. There have been a number. There have been some reviews of the book, 21 of them are on Amazon, on the Amazon site, and about uh, 19 of those 21 reviews are positive, and about half of those 19 reviews that are positive, by the way, are by moderate Calvinists. They're not even non-Calvinists. That's what's interesting. And then there have been a number of reviews that people have done on their, on their blog sites. Most of those, too, have been positive, and none of those that have been done by those who are high Calvinists to affirm an, an, a limited atonement have answered the uh, arguments exegetically that we make in the book, that, which, by the way, many Calvinists make, along with non-Calvinists throughout church history. Those arguments remain unanswered. Okay. So, so the type of arguments you get then from a, a hyper-Calvinist is more like, you know, you misunderstand my view or something like this, or you don't have a high enough view of God or something like that? Well, yes, but now let's distinguish terminology for a minute. 
you mentioned hyper-Calvinists. We need to distinguish a high Calvinist. That's, that's the term historically and the term I'm using to refer to what we would commonly call today a five-point Calvinist. Okay. In other words, a Calvinist who affirms limited atonement. Now, a hyper-Calvinist also affirms limited atonement, but they are considered out of the boundaries of Orthodox Calvinism by their own Reformed brothers and sisters because hyper-Calvinism affirms or actually denies uh, certain things. They deny generally either common grace or they deny that God loves all people or they deny what's called God's universal saving will or they deny what is called duty faith, that it's the duty of all people to believe uh, and so forth. There are actually about five things that a hyper-Calvinist would deny that a regular Calvinist, even a Calvinist who affirms limited atonement, would actually uh, believe. So uh, I, I don't like the term hyper-Calvinist. It is, it is an accurate term when it's used accurately. It may, needs to be used correctly. I'm just not using it accurately. <laughs> yeah. In, in other words, my point is not everybody who affirms limited atonement is right. like a Calvinist. I got you. The, the, my, yeah. my bad on the terminology. That's all right. Uh, so a hyper-Calvinist takes things to their logical conclusions, and a high-Calvinist doesn't. I'm well, just teasing. I'm just teasing. that's what a hyper-Calvinist would say. <laughs> Absolutely. David Inglesma is an example of someone who's re recently responded to my book in a journal article, and uh, he says that uh, Calvinists who agree with unlimited atonement but also agree that God has a universal saving desire, he says they're inconsistent. Yeah. And he's, he is considered by uh, mainstream Calvinists to be a hyper-Calvinist. Uh, he, he does argue that he's a Calvinist who argues that high Calvinists who affirm a limited atonement but also affirm that God has a universal saving will, or, or actually I should say that God, there is a well-meant offer of salvation to all people on God's part. Uh, he argues, and hyper-Calvinists argue, that that is inconsistent. Now, we agree, it's interesting here, all moderate Calvinists and all non-Calvinists agree that uh, with the hyper-Calvinists, that high Calvinists who affirm limited atonement and the well-meant offer are inconsistent. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Engelsma gets that much right. Yeah. He gets wrong, but he does get that right. There is an inconsistency that high Calvinists struggle to overcome there. Okay. Well, okay. So no one, no one stepped up to the plate yet on on the grounds of uh, exegetical response to Dr. Allen. So by all means, get up here, step up to the plate, give the guy a response on his own grounds. But uh, surely somebody in their response, there's probably a favorite proof text that people like to turn to and say, "There's no way you could un that you could interpret this as." Uh, affirming. Oh, yeah. This yeah. definitely affirms limited atonement, and you can't deny it. Surely there's a verse like that. Yeah, there are some verses, and I mentioned them all in the book, both books on the atonement. Uh, some of the kinds of verses that Calvinists use, one of which would be, say, Matthew one twenty one, talking about uh, Jesus, the promise the angel comes and tells, you know, says to Mary that there is going uh, to be a, she's going to, as a virgin, she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And, uh, uh, the text says, you will call his name Jesus uh, in Matthew, ad addressed to Joseph. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his, his people from their sins. High Calvinists take that phrase, his people, and they say, oh, see, that's the Reformed understanding of unconditional election, his people. I bet I know where you're going to go here. This is, uh, let's see, I what do you call it? Negative inference fallacy that there's no, there's no word. The word only isn't in there. Right. Well, I'm going to talk right. I am going to go there. The first thing though, on that Matthew 121 text is I'm going to point out that contextually and every time in the new Testament, and I think there are eight or nine uses of his people, quote unquote, every time that phrase occurs in the new Testament, it is a reference to Israel. Right. It's a reference to Jewish people. And that's the context there. It's You cannot anachronistically make that term mean the elect. That's the first right. mistake that high Calvinists made. But even if it was. Yeah, but even, even if it were, that wouldn't negate the fact that he not only has come to save his people, uh, he's come to save the Jews, but he's also come 
uh, to save any and all who will believe in him, who turn out to be his people in terms of saved people. But that does not mean that he didn't die for the sins of those who don't ever believe. I think what you're getting, that's what you're using the terminology, which I use in the book, the negative inference fallacy. That's probably where I got it from. And so let me explain that from another text, a proof text that Calvin has used in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, as I recall, the text says Jesus died. He loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Notice there, Jesus died for a specific group of people called the church, i.e. people who are believers. Now, what happens there is the the high Calvinist says that that proves limited atonement. See, it says right there, he died for the church only. Well, wait a minute, hold the phone, you know. He doesn't say died for the church only. Paul is writing to believers, and he says Christ died for the church. It is true that Jesus died for the church, but to assert that Jesus died only for the church on the basis of that text and not for other people is a logical fallacy called the negative inference fallacy. And it is to assume that from a bare statement, a positive statement of Jesus died for so-and-so, that therefore he did not die for anybody else. That's a logical fallacy. It's called a negative inference fallacy. And it is the fallacy that every high Calvinist commits on these verses. They are making the negative inference fallacy or uh, using that logical error to try to affirm limited atonement. Let me give you another example that's clear on this. Let's take Galatians 2.20. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, notice there what Paul say. Jesus died for him. Well, by the logic of high Calvinists, the negative inference fallacy, if we apply it to that text, would mean that Jesus came and died only for one person and Paul. Well, of course, that's crazy. (laughs) Nobody believes that. Because we, we recognize there the negative inference fallacy. We don't employ it, and we can't employ it with these other verses either. Well, if you don't want to speculate, then just say so, And but maybe you have more to go on than speculation. But uh, w- when you lay it out like this, to somebody who doesn't have any skin in the game, it just sounds so obvious. You point out, okay, every text that you're going to turn to to try to prove this is going to employ a negative inference fallacy. And then I, there's verses over here that clearly say he, he did die for the whole world. So, right. so my question is, and again, I guess if you don't want to speculate, you don't have to answer, but so what, what, is the, what is the draw to this? What's the attraction to believing it anyway? Well, I think there are several aspects to it. Number one, I want to be fair to my Calvinist brothers and sisters and say that obviously many of them certainly believe that this is what's taught in Scripture. I mean, they, they just believe Scripture teaches this. But as I point out, and I've not had a single Calvinist ever uh, to be able to point to a verse, there is no verse, no text in Scripture that says Jesus died only for the sins of the elect. You will not find that anywhere in Scripture. And many Calvinists who affirm limited atonement admit that there is no verse that explicitly teaches it. But they go on to argue that it's implied or it's a deduction on the basis of uh, unconditional election. If God has only unconditionally elected some people, namely the elect, to be saved and no one else will ever be saved, then logically he died only for those people. Now, of course, that argument assumes the, the truth of unconditional election. I don't believe in the Calvinistic definition of unconditional election. I think that's biblically wrong uh, as well. Now, I do believe in election. All Orthodox Christians have to believe in election. The debate is not that. The debate is over how does election work? How did God go about operating when it comes to election and predestination? All Orthodox Christians believe the Bible teaches election. The debate is over how and exactly what it means and how it should be uh, define. So, number one, the high Calvinist has a problem finding a text 
to support their theology. And this leads me to the second thing. The reason, the answer to your question, at least for many of them, is they are placing systematic theology ahead of exegesis. That systematic theology on this issue trumps exegesis. There is no exegesis that supports, no valid hermeneutically sound exegesis that supports limited atonement. It's a deduction for the most part that has to be drawn. It is an inference that has to be drawn. There's nowhere in the New Testament that teaches that Jesus died only for the sins of a certain group of people. Then you've got the dozen texts that clearly teach he died for the sins of everybody. So it is a it is a, a reinterpretation of all those texts mm-hmm. where all and world and every man has to mean something. And then it is the implication we're gonna we're gonna assume that these texts he dies for his people or for the church or for his sheep, uh, that therefore limited atonement is true. It's a system driven thing that causes them to fail to see the clear biblical teaching exegetically on the topic. And I think that's a problem. I think another problem, uh, and, and let me, I want to try to say this in the right way, mm-hmm. but I get emails or calls or contacts uh, weekly, uh, probably on average of one a week, I guess, of people who have either read my book, Whosoever Will, or they've read The Extent of the Atonement, and uh, they tell me, that they were five-point Calvinists, but now they realize that limited atonement is unbiblical. Well, that's good. Now, now they're four-pointers. Yeah. Good. If now I can talk, just tulips. Yeah. If I can talk somebody off of the ledge of limited atonement, I'm glad to do that. They'll be, in fact, they'll be a better Calvinist without limited atonement, because yeah. uh, limited atonement, even if the other aspects of Calvinism were true, I don't think they all are. But even if they were. Uh, you know, limited atonement is just clearly false. Mm-hmm. And for uh, divesting yourself of a doctrine that's false, that's contrary to the to Scripture, gives you a better platform to operate on what is true and what is right. And so I think, I, I first of all, I'm seeing a, a number uh, of Calvinists who uh, for, uh, previously believed in limited atonement are now rejecting it. Mm-hmm. And the book has had an impact on uh, in that way, and I'm grateful for that. But I, I think one of the reasons why many don't want to, and, and let me say this as well, put it this way, any Calvinist who now reject limited atonement don't want to publicly say so. Yeah. Front the re- and I'm going to tell you the reason they don't. This is what they tell me privately. They say that their high Calvinist friends immediately attack them. Yeah. They beat on them. Hey, per- I've, had, I've had people say things to me. Like, and yeah. it, and I and uh, I'll just I'll say this much. Usually, what I get is something like I have a very low view of God and an elevated like elevated view of man or something like you're that. A, but you're my, a man-centered guy. Yeah, yeah. But but my response is always I don't really care about your high view of God. I just want to have a correct view. So you know. Yeah, and a correct view of Scripture. Right. Well, my my question always is, what does the text say? You know. Yeah. What does the text say? That's the bottom line. You see, those of us who are traditionalists, if you want to use that term, I'm not fond of that term, but you know, if we what, want to fa- use- uh, what uh, term are you fond of? Yeah. Well, there's not a there's not a good one to. Well, really- let's let's make one up right here, right now. Well, one of the terms <laughs> uh, that that uh, is beginning to be used would be the term provisionalism, in the sense that Jesus died, Jesus's death made a provision an actual provision for the sins of all people because it is unlimited. Let's call it biblical atonement. (laughs) Biblicalism. That'll make everybody happy. (laughs) All of our Calvinist friends who believe in limited atonement believe they're being biblical. (laughs) That won't get us far, but I I know what you're talking. I know how you feel and I feel the same way. Uh, It's, it is difficult to come up with a term that is descriptive, you know, non-Calvinism. That's pretty good. Basically, is a way of expressing negatively what we don't believe, but it doesn't express positively what we do believe. We're not really Arminians. Baptists are not, most Baptists are not Arminians. That's another, another mistake that happens as well. Another mistake that happens. Yeah, there's everybody, some, some people on both sides of the aisle, by the way, have two buckets. 
and they're going to throw everybody into one or two buckets. You're either a Calvinist or you're an Arminian. People who argue that point and make that point are people who do not know anything about history or <laughs> listening to what history teaches, uh, because there are there's a spectrum of people who are Calvinistic, and there's a spectrum of people who are non-Calvinistic. Arminianism is one aspect of, of non-Calvinism, but so is Lutheranism. Lutheranism is not um, an aspect of the Reformed movement, nor is it Arminian in its theology. Right. And so, you know, it's you've got to make sure that you're historically, people need to make sure they're historically aware. Mm -hmm. They're in two categories. Most Baptists, for example, most Southern Baptists are a combination of some aspects of Calvinism and some aspects of Arminianism or non-Calvinism. Uh, that would certainly be true of me. And that, that's true of most Baptists that I know. I, I usually use the term traditional or traditional Baptist soteriology is usually what I say. But Right, uh, and that's the term that we're, right now, that we're using, those of us who are non-Calvinist. And, and it, is, it is true that, you know, from there's one sense, and from a traditional standpoint, the majority of Southern Baptists have never been five-point Calvinists. Now, they're in the early days, there were many Baptists who were Calvinists, but there are also many who were not. Mm -hmm. That's also true in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. So, so I think it's so, important to differentiate that. For sure. So the book is a, uh, again, talking to the audience here, the book is a historical theology as well as a, a critical examination of this stuff. And, and by historical theology, I, I mean to say that uh, Dr. Allen takes you back in time and looks at... Uh, uh, a number of key figures throughout church history and what they believed on the extent of the atonement. And really, yeah, really, I think you're going to benefit a lot from this. Because you hear the word Calvinism when we talk about this, or high Calvinism, and uh, one question may pop into your mind is, well, what exactly did Calvin teach, and why do people call it Calvinism in the first place? And it's really going to surprise you when I ask uh, Dr. Allen this, how Calvinist, how Calvinistic was Calvin actually indeed? Well, the popular way of answering that uh, would be to say Calvin was a four-point Calvinist who rejected limited atonement. I think that's clearly demonstrated by the scholarship, especially in recent years, that has been done on Calvin. I wrote 50 pages on Calvin both looking at his primary source material and his commentaries and his sermons and other writings, and then looking at the uh, secondary literature on Calvin. And it seems clear to me that Calvin himself affirmed an unlimited atonement. Uh, to me, there's no debate there. The evidence is quite clear. In fact, I give 50 pages of evidence in my book on that subject. Is there a primary source that you might point people to if they just don't take your word for it? Well, the primary source would be uh, go to the book and look at the footnotes on the various sermons of Calvin uh, that I am utilizing in quote, and quoting from. But one good primary source would be Calvin's commentary on Isaiah 53 and his sermons on Isaiah 53. And there they will see that Calvin is clearly affirming an unlimited atonement. Also, Calvin's comments on Romans 5, 18 and 19 uh, will do the same. They will indicate that Calvin uh, himself clearly affirms an unlimited atonement. Are the high Calvinists aware of this? Uh, some of them are and some of them are. There is a debate within Reformed theology over whether Calvin held to limited atonement or not. That's a debate that's been ongoing in Reformed theology itself. Uh, but I'm just suggesting, having read about that debate in both secondary sources and having read everything I can on, from Calvin, who addresses the question of the extent of the atonement, and I think I have found or read everything Calvin has said on that question, it appears to me clear that Calvin affirms an unlimited atonement. Now, yes, there, there are high Calvinists who are aware of that debate. That's why they don't really want to talk about Calvin's view of the atonement because they know the evidence is weak uh, for him affirming unlimited atonement. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's uh, switch gears here. I'm going to ask uh, one more question before we get to the bonus segment. What are the dangers of a limited atonement? Well, the, of course, there are there are inherent dangers in any doctrine that turns out to be wrong. Right. Uh, and there are varying levels of danger. 
uh, I don't believe that limited atonement is a heresy. <clears throat> I get asked that periodically. Do you think limited atonement is heretical? I really don't. I don't think it is heresy. How do you define heresy? Well, again, heresy would be anything that is contrary to the clear uh, orthodox teachings, uh, major doctrinal teachings of Scripture. Things like, uh, the, let's just name a few here, the uh, deity of Christ would be an example of that. Uh, I would say that things like the um, a denial of, of the atonement uh, as substitutionary would fall close to that category. A denial of the second coming of Christ. These are, these are the kinds of things that are clearly taught in a denial that, that all are sinners in terms of an anthropology that does not affirm the sinfulness of all people, the total depravity of all people. These are the kinds of things that are clearly taught and have been affirmed by by Orthodox Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, from, from the get-go. So uh, that's the kind of thing that would be heretical, denial of some of that. Mm. I don't believe <clears throat> that a denial of universal atonement, uh, an acceptance of limited atonement, I don't believe that that falls in the category of heresy. It's here's how I say it. Limited atonement is not a denial of the gospel, mm -hmm. it's a distortion of the gospel. Mm -hmm. I believe the gospel, as articulated by Paul in the New Testament, is includes the fact that Christ died for the sins of all people. And I think limited atonement is a misunderstanding a a and is uh, poor exegesis and poor theology, it's a misinterpretation. I don't think it rises to the level of heresy, but I do think it is a distortion of the gospel. That's why it's a serious error Okay, to distort the gospel. Now, there are other problems, too. I discuss all of these in the book. There are practical problems in terms of missions and evangelism and uh, preaching and the relationship of the atonement and the preaching of the atonement and the gospel and offering to all people salvation. If, for example, if you hold to limited atonement, how can you offer salvation to someone whom God himself knows, even though you don't know, that's immaterial, but someone who turns out in eternity to be non-elect? How can you offer salvation to someone for whom there is no atonement for their sins? All salvation is based on the atoning work of Christ. If there are some people for whom Jesus died, didn't die, then those people are not savable. If those people are not savable, they're not offerable. Right. You cannot offer them something that doesn't exist. Yeah. The single biggest problem, uh, after you get through the exegetical problem, this is the single biggest problem uh, that high Calvinists have on the limited atonement platform. And furthermore, it's even worse than that. It's not just how can you as a preacher offer, but uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 says that God and Christ are begging through you. We plead, as God, we're begging through us, be reconciled to God, Paul says. And so how can God offer to people he clearly knows are non-elect and there's no atonement for them? How can God in any genuine way offer them salvation that he knows can't possibly exist because there's no atonement for their sins. I see no way out of that dilemma. That is an insoluble problem for limited atonement, and limitarians just basically ignore that. They don't have a way of really getting around that, and their Calvinist brothers who affirm unlimited atonement constantly press on that issue uh, and there's not, not really a good answer to it that I have seen anywhere. Well, I, I, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation uh, with Dr. Allen today. We will definitely have to have Dr. Allen back on. Maybe we'll set up Tulip one by one and let you shoot them down or something uh, in our next interview. But uh, I know you probably have enjoyed it. Everybody seems to like this conversation for some reason. This is the one I always get the most comments and stuff on. But uh, It's controversial, and that's why everybody likes it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Allen, uh, I am going to go into the bonus segment and ask Dr. Allen completely switch gears and ask him why he thinks Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. It's another one of my favorite conversations, but uh, 
Dr. Allen, uh, if you want to see that, you're going to have to stick around and uh, follow uh, the link over to our Patreon page and become a supporter over there to hear that. But Dr. Allen, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, share this with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Delighted to do it. Hey, guys, thanks so much for watching. Uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And uh, if you're on the podcast, leave us a review. If you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Dr. Allen and You Do, where we discuss uh, his uh, view on the, the authorship of the book of Hebrews and how he believes Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. It's a very interesting conversation. You'll want to follow the description, uh, follow the link in the description below to our Patreon page and become a supporter of the show and you'll get access to not only that bonus segment but all bonus segments as well and there's other bonus material over there for you so thanks so much for uh, joining us guys we'll see you next time